Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs. Again. We're looking at verse 10. By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. I was thinking a few weeks ago when Dale addressed the subject of pride on a Sunday night, I was thinking, uh, well, I sure hope he doesn't steal my thunder, because I'd already prepared this, but uh, but certainly he didn't. There's so much to say about this uh, sin of pride. And uh, this verse tells us a certain aspect of it, which I'm going to try to make instructive for us tonight. I call this lesson the cousins, pride and strife. Once again, we see the nemesis of our souls. Uh, This thing about pride is a common subject in both the Old and the New Testaments. This subject has come up already numerous times. We've talked about it in the book of Proverbs. And uh, in the New Testament, we find it uh, often as well. We know that Jesus Uh, said that he that exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That proverb, I mean, that that, that, uh, whole uh, principle of pride. And here in this verse, we see a clear practical teaching about it. And that, that is that it brings with it strife. By pride comes nothing but strife, our version has it. I like the NIV a little bit more to the point. It says, where there is strife, there is pride. Jay Adams has this insight for us. He says, an important one for counsel, he said, this is an important one for counselors, this verse 10. Uh, where there is strife, look for pride. People may deny that they're proud, but this verse indicates otherwise. Counselors, therefore, will seek to promote wisdom, since those who are wise generally will not allow themselves to become proud and will do all they can to allay strife. There is both insight into the problem and direction for solving it, unquote. And uh, I thought that was very insightful. And indeed, this connection with pride and strife is an important key to dealing with sinful anger. If you have an anger problem, one of the keys to solving that very problem and bringing about change in your life is to recognize the connection between strife and pride. So let's consider some ways that this works out. Biblical counselors such as Jay Adams and Wayne Mack and others have long recognized this connection. Uh, Wayne Mack, in his book of homework assignments that's meant to aid counselors and counselees, has a section about the surrender of rights and got a particular one uh, in the study of anger about the, sur- the surrender of rights. It's vital for Christians to surrender every part of our lives to Christ and uh, um and to recognize any areas where we might be holding on to things that God wants us to surrender in our lives. And here's a big one. We need to surrender glory. You know, every Christian knows that glory is due to God alone. But, uh, 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 um, we also know that uh, we have a tendency to horn in on God's glory. Uh, God says, my glory I will not give to another. 
And we say, Amen. However, um, uh, we should admit that uh, we all have a desire for glory uh, in, our, in ourselves. A desire for, for God's glory is in the essence of original sin. I will be like God. Remember, this is what Satan said when he fell. I shall be like the Most High. And he tempted Eve with this. You shall be as God. This was the temptation that was offered to her. Now, I have to qualify that because there is a sense in which it is not sinful to desire glory. Because all of God's children are destined for glory. Glorification is a biblical doctrine. Uh, it's taught in the Bible, Romans 8.30, whom he justified, these he also glorified. And Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, says, the glory you have given me, I have given them. So there is a sense in which we are destined for glory. And, uh, and there's a sense in which a desire for that glorification is, is right. But the glory that we're destined for and the desire for it inside of us is not a glory to be grasped by us uh, before the time that it's due to come upon us. And the glory that we now possess is not a self-exalting glory. This glory that Christ says that he has given us, it's not a self-exalting glory, but it's the glory of Christ in us. That is our glory, the glory of Christ in us. The hope of glory. As Christ is formed in us more and more, we reflect his glory, and we seek to exalt not ourselves, but God. So our glory is, uh, is in his glory. But we need to be aware of the temptation to photobomb. You know, it is to photobomb, right? Well, we've got to be careful that we don't do that with God's glory. Uh, we want to glorify God, but if only we can just Nudge ourselves into the background just a little bit. See, that's the, that's the temptation of the flesh. And that's pride. So this desire for glory, which is inside all of us, is perverted into pride by our sinful hearts. And it works its way out in a number of ways. But the demanding of personal rights is chief among these ways. Now, let me give you an example. When I say that I have a right to the respect from my wife and my children, what's wrong with that statement? Can anybody think of it as a question I'm asking you? What's wrong with that statement? When I say I have a right to the respect of my wife and children, what's wrong with that? Mark. Exactly. It's not a right. I don't have a right to it. Um, and you can say, uh, isn't my wife commanded to respect me? And my children, aren't they commanded to respect me? That's true. But this command for a wife to respect me is a precept of God and not a personal right of mine. Not my right. It's a command from God to her. And when we claim it as a personal right, as though we're worthy of it, as though this is mine, 
Then someone doesn't give that to us. You know what we do in our mind? We say, you took something of mine. How do you feel when somebody breaks into your stuff and steals your stuff? You don't like it, do you? Well, if we claim these rights for ourselves, that's when we get perturbed with other people. You took away my right. Who gave you that right? You're a fallen, sinful human being. What right can you stand up before God and say that you can claim? So when we claim it as this personal right that we are worthy of, then we become angry when we're not given that which we deserve, which we think we deserve. See, God doesn't give this command because we deserve it. He gives the command because it's right that we ought to show respect to others and because God is a God of order. Now, which of us can say that we deserve the respect of others because we've totally and perfectly earned it? Not one of us. Not one of us. We've merited it by our sinless respectability. Not one of us. But that's what we're saying when we become angry because someone has withheld the respect from us that we think we deserve. You know, Aretha Franklin song, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, you know, all I want is a little respect when I come home. Well, that's what some people say. All I want is a little bit of respect. Okay, uh, we all want respect. But are you claiming it as a personal right and are you going to be angry at someone when they don't give you that respect? Well, then you've taken ownership of something that doesn't belong to you. It's not your right, it's your privilege. Another problem with demanding respect is the problem of unrealistic expectations. And I kid around with my kids sometimes when they're ribbing me, you know, I'll say, you know, the problem with me is I get all the respect I deserve. And... And, and it's, you know, tongue in cheek, but the fact of the matter is, you know, at that time I'm getting all the respect I deserve. Um, pride is behind this idea of uh, the, this, this uh, demanding of rights. Uh, we expect sinless perfection in others, and when, we, when they don't deliver it, then uh, we can allow ourselves to be angry. And this whole matter of expectations from others, expecting others to be sinlessly perfect when we ourselves uh, are not. Uh, when someone else's weakness or sinfulness has impacted us, and that happens often in the sinful world, doesn't it? But when their weakness or their sinfulness have, has impacted us, we're quick to rise up in righteous indignation and we think it's righteous. But we're commanded to bear with one another's weaknesses, aren't we? And uh, anger is saying, pridefully, I'm better than you. Uh, you failed in a way that I would not. And yet humility would say, I too fall short in many ways. Uh, humility allays anger and pride feeds it. Now, it is very common for us to sin in response to someone else's sin against us. Uh, then in the end, Everybody involved in the situation is as, is as guilty of strife as the first person that, uh, that, that put it in motion. And what's particularly shameful is when a worldly person begins a strife and the Christian continues it by not responding as Christ has directed us. You know how Christ has directed us to respond 
to those who treat us poorly. He said, bless those who curse you. He's not kidding. This is something that Jesus wants us to do. It is a command from our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, Christian, we need to be on our guard because we never grow in grace to a place where pride is so totally eradicated from us that we're immune to its its poisonous effects in our lives. Uh, And pride will show itself up when we least expect it. And when you feel anger welling up inside of you, before you act upon it, think to yourself, where is this coming from? Where is this anger I'm feeling coming from? Uh, What right am I claiming that I ought to be surrendering to God? How can I respond to this person or this circumstance in a way that brings glory to God and shows love for others? And your anger does not work the righteousness of God, does it? Sometimes strife cannot be avoided in this sinful world. But let it not be perpetuated or caused by us. Most of the time, a soft answer turns away wrath, Proverbs 15.1. And most of the time, as that verse goes on to say, a harsh word stirs up strife. And these are principles that are just uh, uh, interwoven in the fabric of our relationships with others. A harsh answer stirs up strife. A soft answer turns it away. Now think about this. How often have you been engaged in strife with somebody and you know that you didn't help matters because you opened up your big mouth and you said something you shouldn't have said? How often have you done that? You know, we've done that, haven't we? Well, this comes from pride and a lack of self-control. Uh, and, it's, and it's also a lack of love for the other person or persons in the situation. All of which, all of these things are forbidden by God, but they come quite naturally for us, don't they? Now, how about this one? He deserved it. You hear this response. Oh, he deserved it. You ever hear, you ever hear people say that? Oh, he deserved it. Uh, you know, uh, maybe he did. But then you ask the question, do you want God to do to you everything that you deserve? Uh, Has God called you to mete out justice for him? Or how about this one? I couldn't help myself. Oh, that's a common one. I I just couldn't help myself. I just lost it. People say, I just lost it. I couldn't help. And that's what, you know, when people say that, what they're saying is they're denying responsibility. When they say I lost it, that means that they had no control over what they did. And that is a lie. Nothing but a lie. They did. They could control it. They chose not to control it. And and the truth is, they wouldn't help themselves. We're not slaves of our corruption. Christians especially are not slaves of our corruption. I mean, non-Christians are slaves of their corruption. And I think that's important for Christians to remember that, especially when we're engaged in an altercation with an unbeliever. We need to remember that they are slaves to their corruptions, and you are not. Romans 6, sin shall not have dominion over you. And it doesn't have dominion over you. And we don't have to succumb to it. We choose to, and oftentimes that choosing to do so has to do with the non-surrendering of personal rights 
and the embracing of pride in our own hearts. And so uh, we do not have to obey the whims of the fallen nature. God has called us to be more than conquerors, and he has given us the means to do so. Uh, Don't ever say, I couldn't help myself, because when you do, you're calling God a liar. We tend to think of humility also as an antidote for pride. But the root of the matter is love. If we have real love for God and others, humility will be the thing that replaces pride in our lives. Think of this comparison of these two verses from Proverbs. We have our text tonight, by pride comes nothing but strife. And then compare that with Proverbs 10:12, which says, Hatred stirs up strife but love covers all sins. See, hatred and pride are allies, and they together bring about strife. But love and humility are also allies, and together they bring about peace. Now, notice how the Holy Spirit puts these two things, love and humility, together in this New Testament passage to the church in Philippi. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Very familiar passage. We've been there many times, and you've heard me talk about this passage many times, so none of this is going to be anything new to you. But I just want you to see how pride and humility, I mean, excuse me, how love and humility go together and how they're used together by the Holy Spirit in this passage. Verses 1 and 2 says this of Philippians chapter 2. It says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, If any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of of one mind. Now, that's the first part. So far, we see the general overarching precept of Christian love and harmony going together. But then he goes on to give us the particulars as to how this works out itself out practically in our relationships in verses 3 and 4. So he goes on to apply verses 1 and 2, and beginning in verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, another word for pride, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So you see how... The love that's commanded in verses 1 and 2 works itself out practically in humility in verses 3 and 4. And then uh, he puts a capstone on the teaching in these verses. In the, in the next verse, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And this is uh, this uh, he's, he gives Christ as the example for us. He goes on to tell of the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So we know it was the love of Christ which motivated him to come and die for us, don't we? Or we could say that, the, that, that love motivated him to humble himself. 
So love and humility combined in Christ to bring about peace with God for us. Love and humility. And so so it is with us that love and humility combined bring about peace in the church. And according to this passage in Philippians, but it also brings about peace in our homes and in all our other kind of relationships as well. Listen to Charles Bridges. He says, The desire for preeminence, revolt from authority or sound doctrine, party spirit with the pride of knowledge and gifts, all produce the same results. It is, is it too much to say that vainglory, in other words, pride, hath lighted up all the sinful contentions that have ever kindled in the church? See that question that he asks, you know, is that too much to state, he says. And then he speaks of the deceitfulness of the sin of pride. He goes on to say, we must indeed contend for the faith, even though it be with our own compromising brethren. But even here, how yet imperceptibly may pride insinuate itself under the cover of glorifying God. And then he quotes Bishop Hall. I love this quote. Truly, it is the innermost coat which we put on first and put off last. Now, we all know that pride is the most deceitful of all sins. If you didn't know that, you need to know that. We're mostly blind to our own pride. It's the one sin that others can see in us much more clearly than we can see it in ourselves. Even when we think we become truly humble, we're likely to have a proud thought about how we've arrived at humility uh, more greatly than our brethren. George Lawson says this, he said, Pride darkens the mind to one's own faults and the virtues of others. On the contrary, represents one's own virtues and faults of others in a very false and aggravated light. It produces contempt of others. And, um, and it provokes speeches and insolent behavior. And by these means is an endless spring of contentions and mischiefs. We can never live in peace unless we subdue our own pride, unquote. But that is so much easier to say than to do, isn't it? And as Bishop Hall said, pride is the innermost coat which we put on first and put off last. And how do we put something off that we can't normally even see in ourselves? That's the problem with pride. We're to put off sin. How are we to put off pride when we don't even see it? You know, it's difficult, right? Well, one has aptly said this. He said, humility is not thinking lowly of ourselves. It's just not thinking of ourselves at all. But who can attain to that state of perfection, right? To that, I just say, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Well, ultimately, I believe that pride can only be overcome by love. I think we can see that in the Scripture. And and that's uh, uh, that's by the love of God growing more and more in our souls. James 4.8 says this, says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So to, to, to grow in godliness, we need to draw near to God, don't we? Well, in 1 John 4.7, he says this, the Apostle John says, Beloved, let us love one another, 
For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, if you read that chapter, you'll see that John is teaching us that true love in our lives comes from our abiding in God himself. And in verse 12 of that same chapter, it says, If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. So you see the connection of our growth in love to our growth in God and our growing in God. You see, you can't, you can't love others by simply willing to love them. You can't just turn it on. You can't just say, I want to be a loving person. I want to, I want to really love others. You can't just will that to happen. We grow in love towards others as we grow in our love for God, as we grow into God, as we abide in God. And we grow in our love by God by growing closer to God and becoming more like God. And this closeness to him doesn't become, doesn't come to us by osmosis. You know, uh, we need to, uh, we need to truly actively be growing in grace, we must depend upon God for it. So we need to pray and we need to develop our prayer life. We must fill our minds with the word of God. First Peter says in first Peter two, two, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. We must not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as it says in Hebrews ten twenty five, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. You see, for we, we need the fellowship of the saints and the grace that God gives to all of us when we faithfully assemble together and worship him together. We must do these things. We must be engaged in good works and uh, in the good work of putting sin to death in our lives. Every Christian must be engaged in mortification of sin. We must be engaged in other good works, good works of serving others and and so uh, we, we, uh, we so and by so doing, by being involved in good works, we fulfill God's purpose in our salvation. As it says in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has not just saved you so that you can be freed from the penalty of sin. He's saved you for a reason. He saved you because he has good works foreordained for you to walk in. And those that say, I can just be saved and, and go on as I was and unchanged and not under the lordship of Christ are deluding themselves because that's not the purpose for which God saves people to just release us from hell. I'm glad God releases us from the punishment of sin. I mean, I rejoice in that. I don't want to go to hell. I want to be in heaven with him. But he saved me for a far greater purpose than that, and that is to uh, show forth the glory of God in my life and good works. Now, so many Christians say, and they even sing, as we did tonight, uh, that they want just a closer walk with thee. You know, we sang that. Just a closer walk with thee. But they aren't firmly, consistently engaged in these things that I've mentioned for drawing close to God. And be, and, be, and because of that, it's really no coincidence 
that these have so much strife in their relationships, in their families, and with others, and sadly, often even in the church. If you want to grow in love and humility, you can only do so by growing closer to God. There is no other way to do it. Now, let's consider the second part of the proverb for just a moment, and we'll be done. But with the well-advised is wisdom. With the well-advised is wisdom. You see, to be well-advised is to be advised. And to be well-advised is to be one who listens to that advice that they've been given. And to listen to advice that's, that people give you, you need to have a humble, a humble attitude. George Lawson, to quote him on this, he says, The proud and contentious are neither well-advised nor wise, for they despise the advice of others and are enemies to their own peace. The humble will not easily allow themselves to be drawn into contention. Injuries done to them are like sparks falling upon a rock, and they show themselves to be truly wise when they will deny themselves in point of honor in order to preserve peace and to keep themselves and others from sin and trouble. Charles Bridges says this, he says, With the modest, well-advised, there is the wisdom that is from above, which is first of all pure, then peaceable. And he quotes John, I mean James 3.17. And I'd like for us to turn to that passage, uh, as we'll, we'll close with that passage, James, if you turn over to the book of James, chapter 3, because it fits this lesson that we've been studying here so well. I want us to read that passage. Now, I want you to notice how well it fits our text in Proverbs. And if we learn just this much that James tells us here, then the lesson tonight is successful for all of us. Uh, James 3, beginning in verse 13, I want to read through verse 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see how opposite this is to the way uh, so many respond to others in the church, in their homes, and in other relationships, I think at work and different relationships, you see how people respond to others. They respond in the wrong way. But but what always happens? They always they always justify themselves. They've got all these excuses why it's okay and why this is the appropriate way to respond. But 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 I love the way James puts it here. He says he says, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. You know? He said, this isn't from above. This is from below. This is demonic. This is devilish. He said, this wisdom doesn't descend from above. It's earthly, sensual, demonic. 
And so we need to we need to remember that Jesus said, by their fruits, you shall know them. And so by the fruits of the things that we let, uh, the way we the way we respond and the way we treat others and the way we respond to occasions for uh, strife and disagreement in our lives is an indication of what's really going on inside of our hearts. And so we need to be filled with the love of God and we need to be more like Jesus, don't we? And we need to have a closer walk with him, just a closer walk with thee, Lord Jesus. We would learn to walk closer to him and be more like him. Then when these things happen to us, they wouldn't need to surprise us. We would, we would think instead of how can I get back at this person or how can I respond in a way that's effective in shutting this person down? We'd be thinking, how can I respond in a way that ministers to this person's soul? How can I respond in a way that Jesus would be pleased with? Uh, how would he respond to it? And how would he have me to respond to it? And so um, always to remember, if, we, if you memorize any passage, verse 18 here, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Sown in peace is not sown in strife. As I said before, that sometimes strife cannot be avoided in this sinful world, but let's not, let's not be perpetuated by us as God's people because that's against everything that Jesus stood for and everything he wants us to be. So, um, what I want us to do now is I want us to uh, have another hymn.